Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 171, recorded for the week of June 27th, 2022. AWS snow cones in space. Good evening, Ooh. Jonathan and Ryan. How's it going? Both of you are doing well this evening? Very good. Great, great. I'd like to introduce you to our new co-host. His name is Peter. <laughs> uh, he comes to us from Foghorn, where he's a CTO uh, and uh, you know, great partner of AWS. Uh, Peter, why don't you introduce yourself? Nice to meet everyone. I know it's been a long time, but uh, I'm back, baby. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been a little bit, uh, but you know, things happened, and and we just we kept going without you, and uh, we let the rumor mill get active, and. Uh, <laughs> You know, uh, we, you know, there was, there was rumors that you were, you know, working on a secret robot project for Remars. There was, uh, you know, the Oracle finally captured you and was holding you ransom to us uh, for all the bad things we say about Oracle. Um, You know, there was all kinds of rumors, just, you know, rumors (laughs) over rumors. And we just, you know, continued on down the path and and did the best we could. So uh, So there was no rumor that uh, I had the same agent as Debo Samuel and I was holding out. (laughs) <laughs> uh, there was there was none of that. Uh, I did, someone did mention to me you were holding out for more money, um, yeah. you know, for hosting duties, and I, you know that was that was a good one too. But uh, I give him ten percent. Well, good to be back. But, uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, we missed you. Uh, you know, there was lots of news. Uh, I couldn't tell you what anything happened because I've forgotten. But um, you know, there was things that happened. Uh, Jonathan did not record a show while I was on vacation, uh, which is you know, he's he's one for three. So. Good job, Jonathan. Yeah, yep, yep. Job. there was a funny story behind that. I'm proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> there's a funny story behind that which i'll share at some point yeah <laughs> and i still have this the scar to uh <laughs> oh no yeah. well anyway it's good to have everyone back yes. nice to see everyone's faces uh none of our listeners can see your faces yeah, it's been a while your voices yeah it's been a while since we've had everybody it's... so we're happy to have you all back well the cloud did not sleep while you guys were all gone so uh Terraform uh, had their HashiConf EU event la- uh, this week, uh, and they made a few announcements uh, that you know I thought was kind of interesting. So first up, uh, drift detection, uh, which we talked about sort of uh, in a past show, uh, is coming to Terraform Cloud now in public beta. Drift detection continuously checks your infrastructure state to detect and notify you when it doesn't match, of course. This allows operators to have continuous visibility into the state of their multi-cloud infrastructure, combining with the new Terraform run task, which are capabilities that increase efficiency while reducing risk to security compliance and operational consistency. It regularly checks the drifts and shows you in the console the last time drift was run, the resources detected as being in a state of drift, and a visualization showing which attributes have changed. Uh, once the drift is detected, you can then run a webhook, send an email, or a Slack message, uh, unless you're on Teams, then you get nothing. Uh, and remediation is, of course, the next step, and operators can resolve drift issues in the drift tab by accepting the changes with a refresh-only plan or by making changes to the new infrastructure state uh, to get it back in place. Uh, I would like an option to just you know fix it, uh, but that isn't quite there yet in you know, early days. So let, let work out the bugs before you get to automated remediation, I think, is uh, the right answer. So that's, uh, that's the first one from HatchetConf EU this week. That's pretty exciting. I mean, that that is what I think a ton of people who have used, who hear about Terraform and hear about infrastructure as code, and they just expect that it does that. And then they find out after implementing that it doesn't. And uh, it's always a shock. Like, well, what do you mean? It doesn't just keep it that way. So this is super neat. And it'll be, you know, you're always worried about the uh, unintended consequences. So not doing automatic remediation is a wonderful first step. And it'll be great to see where this takes the whole product suite. Yeah, I, I think it's yeah. the natural evolution for sure. Yeah, and I'm, I'm surprised that, you know, like it's, this is 
you know, what we've been waiting for for a while. I thought when I was sure when CloudFormation announced drift detection that they would do auto remediation, they would, you know, have all that. And it's it's sort of in the same boat. I think everyone's a little afraid to pull the trigger. But nice to kind of get to the root cause of why things has changed as well, right? You know, look, look at the look at the audit logs, look at CloudTrail, look at look at whatever you can, and find out why did why did this thing change? You know, was it was it a deliberate change? Was it was it an approved change? Like, should we roll it back? Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a risky risky thing to auto remediate something. Yeah, I, th- I think it's you know the fact that they have this at all. I'm shocked. I mean, it took them how many years to get to Terraform 1.0 to <laughs> at least now in uh, you know in any format a public beta of Terraform Drift I think is a, a, a testament and you know one GA is maybe they'll add remediation which will be in about six years so yeah that's okay as long as it's as long as it's as good as like the twelve Terraform versions before it went GA I'll be fine with it. I'm surprised it's taken so long because I mean the reality is if you run a plan and the plan doesn't require any changes then there's been no drift so what what was the obstacle in delivering this as a feature sooner. Well, I think the remediation piece, right? It's not auto-remediation, but it's remediation, right? Well, then you run the, then you run the apply again. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, I think effectively that's all they're doing. It's just, you know, it's just putting a UI in a, and reporting on it, right? Yeah. I, you know, what I think they were waiting for was decent plan output, the structured plan output from, from Terraform plans, because previously it was just a, I mean, just a, a shit show to, to try and read that uh, as, as, as a human, let alone as a computer. Although I found the best circular reference with uh, with that plan feature. I found a great circular reference. It was actually, it worked. Well, when that comes around again, you can tell us all about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> never again. Never again. I was intrigued by the idea of a refresh-only plan. Um, I'm kind of what that meant. Uh, but, you know, it would be interesting to see if you could... You know, start getting. You know, here's what needs to change in your Terraform file uh, to now make the drift now match the configuration. That'd be kind of cool too. Go the opposite direction. So when you do, mm. you do some click ops, you great and say, hey, here's the things you could change, and here's a snippet you could you know paste into your file and, and make that happen. That'd be super helpful, <laughs> especially for people trying to learn Terraform. It'd be nice, uh, nice segue for that as well. Yeah. I think I want in the future, like just assume I want an assumption that everything in the account is run by that Terraform plan, and then. You can actually delete stuff also that people created that wasn't created by the plan. Yeah, that is one of the annoying things about Terraform is uh, if it, it wasn't created by the Terraform to begin with, there's no way for it to just capture everything and put it into the state and then or delete everything that doesn't match the state. They didn't really have that capability. It's just delete everything that doesn't match the state. That's what I want. Well, that's yeah. that's I can't wait. That that wouldn't be too difficult to do actually. No, because you, all you all you do is you scan the account for resources, and if the resource doesn't exist in the state, you add it to the state, but then the Terraform document itself doesn't doesn't contain an object that um, reflects that component of the state, and so it would be deleted. I volunteer all my engineers' uh, sandbox accounts to be an alpha tester <laughs> of that. <laughs> <laughs> the one challenge with the tool, a third-party tool is that, you know, Terraform or HashiCorp really, it's kind of weirded out when you start trying to monkey with a state file raw. <laughs> so, I, mm. you know, you need to figure out a way to be able to ingest that into in through the module the way they would like it. But uh, yeah, it could be cool. It would be really interesting to see. I think the, the, the other big warning or danger sign would be that, you know, like if you remove things from the configuration, that the other things that remain in the configuration are dependent on. 
So it can get really funky with dependencies and stuff like that. Like if you accidentally remove the VPC configuration and it auto remediated to remove that VPC, you know, that's not going to work. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the whole launchpad thing details is details. not managed by Terraform. I'm a big picture guy. Yeah. Well, again, I think you kind of get into, <laughs> you can also do confidence, right? Like my remediate, how much, how much confidence do you have in this remediation versus, you know, ones maybe, then you could have it on a score basis. So you only remediate things you're highly confident in being remediatable. So. The yeah. other big announcement out of uh, HashiConf EU was Boundary uh, is now available to you in beta on the HashiCorp Cloud platform. Of course, H- uh, Boundary builds on top of the power and flexibility to provide a single, fully managed cloud-based workflow to securely connect to remote hosts and critical systems across cloud service catalogs, on-premise infrastructure, and Kubernetes without needing to manage any of the underlying systems or operations. Uh, Boundary is the first solution of its kind to automate the onboarding of users and targets to streamline remote access with integration with IDPS and service catalogs. So if you're into the zero trust access and you've been waiting for Boundary to be a SaaS service, you're now set. So I actually might play with it because every time I thought about using the open source tool, I've just lost interest after reading the docs <laughs> just because it's a lot to do. It's funny because I just I've removed a lot of the need for direct access to machines, and so I've I've lost interest too, just mostly because I just build immutable now for everything in my at least in my personal sandboxes. Yeah, well, all those people who like to build data centers in but the yeah. sky, they need to solutions like this. And one thing that's really kind yeah. of missing, I think, for any use case I would have from a security side is that it doesn't really log um, actions when you go through Boundary. If, like, if a proxy would actually log, you know, screenshots of RDP and or command line stuff, I think that'd be really great. And then I could use that as a solution for that problem. But uh, maybe that's on the roadmap. I don't know. I, should, I haven't talked to HashiCorp in a while. Um, you know, I don't know what really their long-term vision for HTTP Boundary is. If it's just going to be something really designed for engineers, or is it going to be something that's going to really going to meet compliance needs as well? It, it applies to access to services, not just not just systems, though. So, and with, although access to systems will probably go away with the mutual infrastructure, I think access to services and the zero trust, um, whatever. I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's it though. Yeah, access to systems. Like all those apps that historically were on the enterprise network and passed uh, security compliance checks on the condition that you first had to get on the network in order to access them uh, now goes away, right? Because, okay, well, what if there's someone on the internal network? Now those things are super exposed. There's no authentication. There's you know, plain text authentication, and you always skated by by saying, well, yeah, but you have to be on the VPN first before you can get to that app. And uh, that zero trust model, just get rid of the enterprise network, get rid of VPNs, right? That's the goal. Just be able to trust the public network by not trusting the public network, as dumb as that sounds. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to AWS. And uh, Remars was this week, or last week. Uh, so there was some uh, ML stuff we had to talk about. So I apologize now in advance for all of our hosts who love <laughs> ML so much. The first up is the SageMaker Ground Truth now supporting synthetic data generation. Uh, this is for synthetic image data specifically. Uh, building ML models is an iterative process that at a high level starts with data collection and preparation, followed by model training and model deployments. Combining your real data with synthetic data helps to create more complete training data sets for ML models, and synthetic data is created by simple rules, statistical models, computer simulations, or other techniques, which then, uh, I was glad that you gave an actual example of how you might use this, because I had no freaking idea. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, mainly, if you're thinking about a, a production floor where you're 
uh, trying to use a machine learning or computer vision to detect defects in objects, uh, you would need to, of course, teach the model all those defects. And so to teach the model, you need photos of the things that are defective. And so for some things, you may be very common, but others are actually very difficult to generate or require certain machinery to be broken or things that would be expensive to actually fix just to generate a single photo. Uh, so by using the synthetics, uh, you can now create basically using statistics and math and, and simulations, uh, all kinds of different failure scenarios that you can then load into the model. And this overall will lower the cost of your training and, and the time-consuming nature of manual uh, labeling operations for your computer vision models. So that's what the whole point of this is, which is uh, super nerdy, but kind of cool. It is cool because one of the problems with, with training um, ML models is that if you don't have enough data, the, the output of that model is something that's very specific to the input training set. And so if you have, you know, if you only had 10 examples of widgets that were bad, then the ML model will be very good at spotting those very specific um, examples of things that were bad, but it, it wouldn't be able to generalize in any way. So by having the ability to inject sort of non-normal edge cases, even if they weren't real, it helps the model be more generalized and more applicable to you know, real world real world scenarios. And yeah, I mean, if if your manufacturing error rate's only one in a thousand anyway, it's going to be really hard to get enough data to actually train a model. So you, you you have to fake it, fake it to make it. Doesn't it totally feel like the definition of circular reference, though? I think that's that's true. But I think that's that's how all perception works. You know, you you don't know what something is until you've seen it, and then once you've seen it, you recognize it later. I, I yeah. think it's I think it's a I think it's a normal part of like even how people function, let alone computers. Like a vaccine, <laughs> kind of like a vaccine, right? Some fake information that your immune system works on so that you get it up to speed. Maybe not really. You're like no, <laughs> totally not. But I'm not allowed to say no to the main sponsor of the show. So <laughs> the new host, the new host has uh, Trump rights tonight. That's how it works. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Don't don't ever use that term. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it is just kind of interesting to see machine learning. You know, now it's generating its own training data. Like, <laughs> yeah, it is. It's what, really like, what do you know? I was right. I knew <laughs> no. I was right. I told you. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just turtles all the way down, right? It's just synthetic turtles and real turtles. <laughs> and that's how you get to where we're at. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, like, I, I wish I had more to do in this space. because I think it's really cool. I just I don't get enough of that to do. Uh, well, you know, your co-hosts here are all cloud whisperers, but now we can be code whisperers. With a new ML Power Coding Companion, which was also announced at Remars last week, uh, and just to give you kind of some context on this, the the blog post author uh, walked through some of the history of code editors uh, from the utilitarian days of VI and Emacs and key punch cards, uh, you know, in basic capabilities to the fact that they then added in uh, with increased CPU, uh, lexical assistance, dynamic completions, linting, syntax helping, and snippets. Uh, all through things like Visual Studio and IntelliSense. Uh, and overall, the goal at the end of the day is to make developers write better code while reducing routine and repetitive work. Uh, Amazon uh, has done some work in this area already with CodeGuru, uh, but CodeGuru has the issue that you need to actually commit your code before it scans it. And this is actually a real AI uh, pair programmer for you, similar to GitHub Copilot. Uh, with the Code Whisperer trained on billions of lines of code empowered by ML, Code Whisperer has the same goal to make you more productive, Launching in preview with support for multiple IDE and languages, you can simply install the proper AWS IDE toolkit, enable the Code Whisperer feature, enter your preview access code, and get to typing. 
The Code Whisperer will continue to examine your code and comments and present you with syntactic, uh, syntactic, syntactically correct recommendations. And the recommendations are synthesized based on your coding style and variable names and are not simply just snippets. Code Whisperer uses multiple contextual clues to drive those recommendations, including your cursor location, the code that precedes the cursor, comments, and code and other files of the same project. You can use the recommendations as is, or you can enhance and customize them as needed. And the preview supports Python, Java, and JavaScript using a Visual Studio Code, IntelliJ, uh, PyCharm, WebStorm, and AWS Cloud9. Apparently, it's coming to the AWS Lambda console as well with support in the works uh, and should be ready very, very soon. And no mention of cost at this point, uh, but during the preview, you can use it for free. So get advantage of all of your uh, coding help now before they charge you an arm and a leg for this capability in the future. Uh, TechCrunch <laughs> uh, asked the question that all of us are asking, which is, are you just copying GitHub Copilot? Uh, and Vazzy Filamin, Amazon VP in charge of AI, said, no, no, no. Uh, CodeGuru and DevOps Guru set the foundation that we started many, many years ago to get to the point of being able to release uh, a solution like Code Whisperer. Uh, interesting, one of the things that's different about this product versus the Copilot uh, is that it does look at where the code comes from. And if the code snippet uh, is similar to an existing snippet in an open source project, it'll actually highlight the license of that particular function or snippet, uh, so allowing you the f- choice to then use it or not use it based on if you accept that license term. Yeah, so not only are they training their own machine learning models, but they're also generating code. Not concerned at all. No. <laughs> See, everyone's been joking about no code and thinking about you know GUIs and drag and drop yeah. stuff in the in the interface. And we, we we have joked before on the show about you know saying things like, "Hey Alexa, write me a, write me some code that does this," and yeah. and tools like this are literally yeah. turning into that, to that level of of. of uh, of, of skill, if I can call it skill for, yeah. for a machine, but you know, it will take comments that you've written. You know, this function is supposed to take this image, resize it to this particular size, and save it to a folder, and it will give you a function that does exactly that. Yeah, yeah, it was, it's, it's crazy. And even I mean, in the screenshots of the blog post, they show you know a comment. And the comments just see if a number is prime, mm-hmm. and literally has a button that says insert code, and it literally inserts the code that will check if your number is prime, like. It's, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. yeah. Yes. But then that just becomes the code. It's just a higher level of abstraction, right? Write that sentence in uh, in a text document and then run it through a uh, an interpreter that knows what it means. Like, yeah. So I don't know if this is, I mean, the, the nice thing about this versus no code is that it's not an abstraction, right? No code is an abstraction where you don't really see what's working. What this is doing is just auto-generating that code. So it's still code in the end, just like a developer right. wrote it. Well, you yeah, the input was abstracted, and then you get the next layer down, which you can then modify and tailor and customize, and, and, and probably is probably a lot more maintainable at that point and customizable. I mean, all they've done is figured out that we're all just going to Google searching for things and looking yeah, up the group so overflow. <laughs> Maybe that's what Dave's doing. <laughs> they just automated that part. Yeah. I'm just surprised Stack Exchange didn't do this first. <laughs> yeah, really. Really. I, I, that was always the thought I thought about Copilot, too. I was like, Stack Exchange should have done this. Yeah. I, I've never heard anything about Copilot in terms of code quality checking on the data that they use to train their model. Whereas we know that CodeGuru has been around for a few years and, and they've they've built out that functionality before they've de- delivered the functionality that writes code for you. So I, I would assume this is very tightly integrated with CodeGuru and um, and quality is, I, I would expect, significantly better than Copilot. I mean, I know that your code and Ryan's code contributed to CodeGuru, so I'm, I'm unsure about that statement. 
(laughs) 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 To be fair, my code also contributed to to Copilot too. So it's, you're screwed either way. (laughs) You do tend to learn more from mistakes than uh, successes. So (laughs) (laughs) I'll take the contribution. (laughs) Uh, One thing I thought was interesting is that it said it writes the code that it matches your style. Uh, which is kind of creepy. So, like, you know, it's one thing because you typically catch a snippet and you're copy pasting and like looks like a sore thumb because it's like it doesn't even look at the way I would write that code. Uh, but the fact that it actually matches up to your style is kind of creepy, <laughs> a little bit. Well, I can't wait to test this. If if it starts swearing in the comments of of the code, then then I know it's we should be scared. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, if it were mimicking ryan not our ryan here but uh the foghorn ryan's code then it would just be infinitely nested loops <laughs> but going back to peter's point a few minutes ago it, it's not a, it's not a, much of a stretch to think that you could write the document in english you just write it as comments and say this is what i want it to do and it never shows you the code that it generates it just generates it and builds and you provide the test cases, and then you test the test cases against the code that was built. You don't ever have to see Ooh, the code. Yeah, mm-hmm. I like it. I don't want to see the code. Nobody yeah. wants to see the code. Exactly. You know how frustrating it is to look at code? I'm sure you all do. And it, it, you know exactly <laughs> what it's supposed to do, and you click the button, and it doesn't do it. It's infuriating. I mean, that's the existence of my coding. Like, <laughs> yeah. I wrote the code. It does exactly yeah. what I want to do. Then, sorry, compile error. It, oh. <laughs> well, no, that, I mean, usually the problem is that it does exactly what I told it to do. Oh, that, happens, that happens on this too, yeah. I, I don't want you to do what I actually told you to do. I need to do the thing I wanted you to do. Yeah. Exactly. Hey, everyone. Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008. They are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod. www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. All right. Well, if you are using uh, AWS API endpoints and uh, you apparently have not updated your SDK, CLI, or JDK environments since 2014, uh, you may be in trouble. Uh, as Amazon has announced that they will end support for TLS 1.0 and 1.1 in all of their systems starting June 28th, 2023. Uh, that means you will now need to use TLS 1.2 or TLS 1.3. Uh, and they have uh, provided mitigations in the past for TLS 1.0 and 1.1 issues, uh, but overall they're tired of explaining to customers how they try to always negotiate the higher level, and they just want those turned off. And so they're now going to turn off that in the APIs to no longer have to answer all those RFP questions from customers and get yelled at by them for not turning off ciphers they don't want. So uh, if you are in trouble with this, you have a year to get there, uh, as it's the 29th, so you have exactly 364 days. Good luck to you. Can I... Can, does anybody want to take my bet? I'll take the over on that. I will bet that Amazon extends this uh, deadline. I don't know. They said uh, that in the article, they said 95% of AWS customers today are already using TLS 1.2. So it's only about 5% of their entire population of API calls is not compliant. I don't know. That's a, that's a pretty low percentage for them to extend. If it was bigger... I'm in. You know, and I've, 10 bucks. 
Ten bucks. Who I'm, wants to take it? I'll take it. Yeah. Two I'll beers. take it. Nope. Two beers. Yeah. I'll take it. I'll take it. We yeah, all right. take it. Ten, ten dollars each. Okay. Because okay. How about this? How about this? Um, no, two got, beers no, each. No going back. Come on. <laughs> two beers each is more than ten dollars. Two beers each is more than ten dollars. Two beers yeah, each yeah. at uh, my local pub near my place in San Francisco. I like it. Done. And we'll all hang out and talk about the fact that uh, all these customers got their act together and Amazon stuck to their guns. No, hopefully, hopefully, <laughs> not going to happen. No, think. I mean, twenty fourteen is nine years ago. Think about how much technology's changed in nine years. I think a lot of the constraints around the use of TLS one are going to be devices which are manufactured. You know, it could be cameras, it could be any kind of IoT device that's been out in the wild for however long, and they don't have the ability to update it. And maybe it doesn't have the hardware capabilities to do um, elliptic curve encryption for TLS 1.3, maybe maybe it requires a customer to actually log into the thing and say firmware update, but they have no way of knowing who their customers are. So, I mean, nine years is a long time. By the time they expire TLS 1, nine years is a very long time for any consumer electronic device. So I'm going to say they're not going to extend it. I'm going to be happy to buy both of you beers. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, would, I, I hope they don't have to. Yeah, hopefully not. I mean, last week we talked about uh, the new Amazon, uh, you know, mainframe movement process uh, to help you move your mainframes you've been running since the 1980s yeah. uh, to the to the you know to AWS. So you know, nine years is short in some some contexts. <laughs> banks banks still can't turn off their systems that run their passbook savings accounts, run off of paper passbooks. Just digest that for a minute. They could, they can, but they're not willing to take. They're not willing to the time. Right. Not, yeah, you can. You definitely can. They they don't. They don't know. I mean, you think about like some satellites. Like the longest satellite that was in space was Landsat. It was in, it was orbiting for twenty nine years, taking pictures and sending them down to Earth. Technology twenty nine years ago definitely not capable of TLS one point three encryption. Technology mm-hmm. that we launched today, sure, we can do remote updates. You know, we have SSDs. We have much more much more simple ways of. Of um, of remotely managing hardware than we did back then. I mean, back then you burned an EEPROM, and that was the code. And maybe you've got a spare one. I don't know. It's it's things are a lot more dynamic than they used to be. True. But this is about what it used to be like, not about what it's like now. It's what so I think to- it'll be disruptive. <laughs> I just think it won't be a high enough volume that they'll they'll exchange it because being part of a couple of these programs. Yeah, I mean, other than industrial applications, I think the the big risk is. You know, per, you know, IoT devices that you sold to the consumer market, uh, and you know they're going to say, "Well, force ops and lessons." You know, you need to upgrade anyways. <laughs> so, and they have the numbers. Okay, so double or nothing on the bet. Double or nothing on the bet would be if. <laughs> listen, this is going to be great. <laughs> if they turn it off, you guys win the first round, which is the beers, and then if a name brand has an outage because they turn it off, I win. <laughs> and then we're even. But if not, then you win a beer and a shot. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, I'll, I'll take it just for fun. It. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean what, what would be nice is, is if they could just turn off TLS 1 for new customers, not old customers. But you know, right. at the point, at the point yeah. that negotiation yeah. happens, you know, what, what do you do? Yeah, it's too late. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're talking about their APIs, right? So how do they turn it off for new customers versus old customers? that? You know, issuing whole new endpoints. So I get why they're not doing that because that's their typical other way of doing this. Is yep. you know, net new things can't have the old thing, but old things can still have it. 
Yeah, I would, I would imagine there there will be some effort to go through customers' cloud trail logs to figure out who's using what still and, and reaching out to them and doing whatever they can to mitigate these problems before they become problems. Yeah. Well, apparently at uh, Remars, we found out that snow cones are in space. Uh, what? With a recent, yeah, a recent NASA certification allows the use of snow cones with a small modification on the wrapping of the exterior in a protective yellow film to go to space. The snow cone device that went to space ran an ML algorithm to review, catalog, and identify objects in large-scale photos taken during experiments conducted by Axiom, which is the company that brought to space, eliminating the need to transfer data to Earth and back, reducing an 18-hour process to just 20 minutes. This is the first time AWS has put a general-purpose cloud computing device into orbit, uh, and this is done with a stock snow cone with minimal modifications. Uh, but they do say AWS could pursue this market uh, more heavily and make optimizations to weight and durability uh, in the future. This is something they're going to do a lot of. But uh, kind of cool. Uh, but apparently they have uh, you know non-general purpose computing in space already, per this article. This, this is the first general purpose but, uh, you know, custom stuff for Amazon's. Already <laughs> in space, apparently. That's how I read it. Mm. That's an interesting pickup on the, on the language there. I hadn't I didn't get that when I read the article. But I think it's neat. I mean, it just shows that, you know, a lot of these consumer grade stuff that we're using is, you know, it makes a lot of sense. And that's, you know, when, you know, connectivity and, and our our access to the Internet, when you don't have that, a lot of them fall down. But this here are the solutions to those types of problems. It's cool. That is really surprising. I just think about a sci-fi book I read about, you know, Earth getting taken out when the moon broke up and they had a space station and then all the computing they were doing a space station. I'm like, oh yeah, they just put ML in space. That's all they need to do. So perfect. Got it. Seven Eves. It's one of my favorite yep, books. Seven Eves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. I mean, it would be interesting if Amazon launched satellites with with you know general compute on and then you know the round trip time from the space ISS to to a to, to a satellite someplace and back will be shortened to Earth, probably higher bandwidth. But I, I don't know. It's I think it's Somebody spent a lot of money on getting this thing into orbit and and working on this project for this press release. It's nothing special. It's computing really. the edge. It's just the it's, edge. It's really it, far it, out there. It is. It is the edge, but it's <laughs> it's inside a it's inside an environment which is designed to be safe for people to live in, just like all the other things that we have, all the other appliances we have in our homes. It's it's not like it's it's, it's particularly ruggedized for the you know the elements or anything else. It's it's a snow cone in a in a rubber in a rubber case. <laughs> mm-hmm. What? Uh, who put it in orbit? Axiom is the name of the company. Axiom, uh, yeah. the, the first private space flight uh, to the International Space Station by Axiom. They're the ones who took it up there. Uh, okay. I thought maybe it was a Blue Origin thing. No, I mean IBM ThinkPads have been on the space station. I think they only lapped up on the space station since the space space station was launched. Mm-hmm. So that's you know that's old technology. <laughs> So the uh, for the space you know snow cones and space movie Jonathan gives it two thumbs down. <laughs> <laughs> it's gone from suck to blow. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> such a great movie. Well, if you uh, if you are an Amazon customer who's bought an EKS since the early days, uh, you know that the initial launch uh, their goal was to simplify the management of EKS uh, and you know at a mean level. So they basically just figured out what the average customer needed. And that was the control plane you would get. And then when you ran out of capacity in your control plane, you then had to open a support case and they'd manually scale that up for you. And then they added auto-scaling and everyone thought, ah, oh, everything's good. Except for the fact that it took 50 minutes to auto-scale the API server. Uh, and that was due to a lot of different areas. And so Amazon's now pleased to tell you that they brought it down 4x to 10 minutes, which is still nine minutes too long. 
But the latest improvements to the backplane uh, were driven by many multiple Ambus teams, and they've done things like paralleling, parallelizing the updates to the API server and etcd. Uh, previously, they would only increase API server once etcd had been scaled, which is prudent based on my experience with etcd. Uh, <laughs> and they apparently felt the same way, as they said that was due to caution. Uh, but now they feel they can do both without risking availability. They now have a blue-green style updates for the API server, so they can spin up the new thing, get it ready to go, and then flip over, which seems logical. Uh, they reduced the etcd instance warm-up time. They speeded up the API instance bootstrapping process and adjusted it, uh, adjustments to the quotas per service and burst rates that were all made. In addition, this allows them to now do blue-green style updates for the API servers and nodes versus a rolling replacement. Uh, this makes upgrading to new EKS versions even faster, and this will allow future EKS updates to benefit from those changes in the future. They do expect to now be able to increase the, increase the number of worker nodes to 15,000 worker nodes and over 450,000 pods with these improvements eventually. Not today, but eventually. That is a lot of step function workflows behind the scenes. You can only imagine. <laughs> is it all just step function? Oh my god! I, it, I mean, just from what I know from you know managing Kubernetes and, and getting that API up to date and scaling it out, and um, you know, like because that's a lot of what it is. It's just a lot of moving parts that you have to coordinate. So it's workflow. And so I think that you know when they first announced it, it took fifty minutes. I'm like, yeah, sounds about right. So <laughs> now that they're doing ten minutes, I'm like, okay, so they're they're probably doing something more like blue green. So they have. The config more in a, a warm standby state, which is sort of crazy when you think about it. It's neat. So are there only fifteen thousand worker nodes in all of EKS? What well, per cluster? Per cluster backbone. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. That wouldn't be a lot of EKS. You know what else That's would a- cut the time down by by th- by thirty minutes? It is asking for the update thirty minutes sooner. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. That's the real reason they put this out there is that the, the, the EKS API for the service, not the Kubernetes API, yeah. <laughs> like stop asking if it's ready yet. Well, then uh, if you've ever had to enable uh, VPN tunnels over a direct connect uh, that you've paid for, you may have been surprised to find out that you required a public IP address to do such a thing, uh, which is sort of, you know, defeats the purpose of having a private you know, point-to-point link in the first place. Uh, and so finally, now, many years later, since I complained about this, uh, you can now enable site-to-site VPNs over Direct Connect using a private IP address. Customers can encrypt DX <laughs> traffic between on-premise neighbors without the need for a public IP address, enhancing your security and your networking privacy. Can you imagine, like, waiting 10 years for this? Uh, pretty much, I did well, it. We waited six years for it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like, oh my God, how could this take that long? Yeah. I waited long enough to where I just moved away from this <laughs> model no, 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 just, just a private IP, not a pub, just a private IP. Uh, no, sorry. No. Yeah. I mean, it's on the other end of this connection that you know about because I had to declare all of my IP ranges into the configuration of the Direct Connect. So you already knew about it. It shouldn't be so hard. I mean, the nice thing about public IP spaces, though, is that you, you can fail over very easily if DirectX is uh, not DirectX. Um, it's, it's being um, maintained or it's down for some reason. You can fail over to the internet route. If you use private IP space, then it, you, you have no backup path. So, I mean, you know, choose choose wisely. Well, I mean, if you had two direct connects with two different private IP addresses, couldn't you solve that problem? Mm, it depends if they both go down for maintenance at the same time in the same region, I guess. <laughs> well, that's why I go with two different vendors and two different pops. I can solve this problem Where with, the public with access- money. <laughs> with money, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, you still have but to do that. But where the public endpoints of the yeah. VPNs available over the public... Direct, like your direct connect to public um, services. 
Well, you, I mean, you could limit them, right? You could you could say only you know these endpoints could talk to it to establish a VPN. You tunnel, can still but then, use your direct connect with public IPs. Yeah, yeah, you could, yeah, you could, um, and you can still yeah. do it that way if you want to. You just don't have to now. You just couldn't do private IPs. Correct. Which meant, however, your internal network was probably set up. It's like, yeah, but it, that it's just so much easier based on how we set up our firewalls and everything if they're private IPs. Correct. Yeah. Just give the people what they want. Meet me where I'm at, which is I want private. <laughs> mm-hmm. Said it 10 years ago. Even even better would be direct connect being encrypted natively end-to-end between the, the appliance in the in the rack and, and Amazon's region. Who would want that? And then you wouldn't even have to worry about doing that. <laughs> I mean, people getting direct connect don't want private. Yeah. I mean, many, many moons ago, they, they told me that we would get MaxEc uh, support, which never yes. came. So, you know. Uh, no, it, it, came, it came eventually. Did it come eventually? It's, okay. It, they have that now. But uh, it was way late. Yeah. Way later the than they said it was going to be. Yeah, I see March 31st. It was after I stopped caring. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on to Google. Uh, Anthos is now generally available for on-premise workloads via the Google Distributed Cloud Solution. Uh, GDC, of course, is their answer to Azure Stack and AWS Outposts. Uh, Google Anthos on-premise is an on-premise version of Google Cloud Anthos, a hybrid app dev platform that runs on top of Kubernetes, which I questioned that description. But so they said. <laughs> it's designed for building applications that can run unmodified on any cloud or data center server, and Anthos on-premise is now included in the Google Distributed Cloud portfolio. It'll be now known as Google Distributed Cloud Virtual, or GDC Virtual. It is a software-only extension, and you can run it to, uh, use it to run your own VMs on vSphere or bare metal boxes. That is really neat, because uh, that's, you know, one of the biggest detractors I've seen from adopting something like Outpost or or, or the Azure solution is just how much tie-in there is into the, the physical hardware and the support model of that physical hardware. Like, it's really you know, can be tricky in highly secure environments or, you know, just not very well, you know, designed environments. So this is great that you can run it on your own, own virtual, you know, platform for your choice. Yeah. If you're concerned about that hardware lock-in, I have a story for you later. Let me tell you, We're, we'll get to that a little bit in the show notes here. So not really the lock-in aspect. Okay. It's, it's more along the lines of like, if you have a whole bunch of stuff, and how tied into the backplane it is. Yeah, I, I have a story for you. <laughs> we'll get to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <In the show>. <laughs> <laughs> I see. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> uh, well, I think uh, we, when we ranted once about uh, mobile apps for, for cloud providers, we said how stupid it was that none of them had pricing. And apparently a Google Cloud product manager listens to the show because I now have billing info in my Cloud Console mobile app for Google. Uh, nice. All available to you now for Android and iOS. You can access not only some of your resources, logs, incidents, and errors, but also your billing information to know that it's now costing you $100 million a day. Perfect. Yeah. This is for all those executives that only want to take their iPads to meet. Yeah, exactly. Where do you think I use this <laughs> app at? On my iPad in a meeting. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> how, much is, how much is that service costing? I don't know. Let me hold on. Let me grab my iPad. Now I can tell them. Yeah. But they probably still can't. <laughs> Probably not. I mean, I don't, I, well, people aren't tagging it correctly, and <laughs> right. Oh, that is. Oh, I'm not sure. You know, I, I, I can tell you that I have not really used the mobile app, so I don't even know if I can switch projects properly to even be able to go to the right project right. to see what I need to see. So, yeah, who knows? So maybe, I'll, maybe I'll do that next week. Someone has this problem. I just don't yeah. know who they are. Yeah. 
All right. Well, if you uh, are using Cloud Armor for your edge security policies, uh, it now supports uh, new edge security policies and proxy load balancers. Uh, Cloud Armor, or the DDoS WAF solution for Google, is launching two new major capabilities this week. The new edge security policies for Cloud CDN, Media CDN, and Cloud Storage, and filter requests before they are served from the cache, which I would have thought was how it worked before, but apparently it did not. Hit the cache, then hit the WAF. <laughs> Uh, Cloud Armor now also supports the TCP proxy and SSL proxy load balancers to help block malicious traffic attempting to reach backends behind those load balancers. And customers can now use these proxy endpoints to leverage Google load balancing to serve TCP-based workloads that don't support HTTP protocol or for customers who want to handle their own SSL TLS offload downstream or when required for mutual TLS. With Cloud Armor, you can now deploy this capability for workloads running anywhere, on-premise, Colo, Google Cloud, or other cloud platforms, which I added there for because I just learned this today, that I could use Cloud Armor with any cloud. Uh, you can do this with AWS with CloudFront, but uh, you'd have to go to uh, a resource and CloudFront first. You can't go to just the WAF uh, directly to my on-prem side. You had to go through CloudFront first. So this is a nice uh, thing I didn't know about GCP I learned today. So there you go. That's kind of neat because I didn't, yeah, I didn't know that either. Yeah. Um, so instead of going and buying, you know, your WAF from, I don't know, Akamai, you can now use Google. And mm-hmm. have the same solution both sides when you move from DCP from uh, from on-prem. That's just kind of nice. And I bet it's cheaper on Google. I'm sure it is. <laughs> I'm sure there's data transfer costs uh, for egress traffic going from Cloud Armor <laughs> to your on-premise data center. But hey, meet me where I'm at. And if I didn't excite you with those Cloud Armor features, they had a second announcement for Cloud Armor features this week, including rate limiting, adaptive protection, and bot defense. The per-client rate limiting with two new rules for throttle and rate-based banning... The bot management, which now forces a bot to be challenged with a recapture enterprise uh, challenge, and machine learning adaptive protection to help counter advanced layer 7 attacks. And because that wasn't enough, they also gave you two new preview features, which includes an updated pre-configured WAF rule based on CRS 3.3 and network-based threat intelligence to help block known bad traffic from entering your network. All things we want, Yep, I think. Can't, I don't see anything that like we don't want. Yeah, exactly. All these things I want. And considering how much I dislike AWS WAF and how draconian it is in some of its things, uh, I this almost makes me want to try Google Cloud more <laughs> for my personal project, which yeah. is the CloudPod website. So yeah, maybe that'll end up on Google one day. I, I haven't quite got there yet. It's starting to become more on my radar than it ever was before. Multi-cloud. Yeah, multi-cloud the CloudPod website. Yeah, we could do that. We'll move it to Kubernetes and then we can serve it from either. So this is a- yeah, yeah, we could do it. It's containerized. We could totally do that. Well, the database is the problem, though, really, with the CloudPod. Because it, it <laughs> so it's, it's WordPress. It needs a database on the back end, which is kind of the hassle. Uh, well, then our last Google story is uh, new sustainability offerings to help public sector agencies improve. And technically, these are used by anybody, but uh, they targeted uh, public sector because they leverage GIS quite a bit, which is the... Uh, location geospatial data. Uh, the first one is the Climate Insights for Natural Resources. Uh, leveraging geospatial data and climate insights for natural resources can help you determine the risks of extreme heat, wildfires, floods, and drought around the globe. Drawing on GE's data cl- catalog of more than 900 open data sets spanning over 40 years and leveraging the expertise of Climate Engine to provide departments and agencies with an efficient way to ingest, process, and deliver pre-built Earth observation insights by API in decision-making contexts. Uh, so hopefully... You know, people like PG&E here in California are using this to figure out where the wildfires are coming from and stop those. And then the uh, second part of this is climate insights for infrastructure, which allows them to understand and anticipate climate risk to the built environment is a challenge for any org managing infrastructure. 
Not only is it necessary to have up-to-date insights regarding climate risks, but also current climate data needs to be combined with infrastructure data to assess risk and prioritize investment. So this is, hey, that bridge is in a flood zone that will eventually undermine that bridge. <laughs> Those are the data things we can now get. Climate <laughs> insights for infra make GIS data easy to access, analyze, and share through unified solution, building on top of the GEE dataset, GCP, and CARTO. These insights enable planners, policy analysts, and operations staff and executives across data for their decision-making through intuitive and easy location intelligence platform, all while leveraging the cleanest cloud in the industry. So they have a new insurance company as a customer, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> should I build my data center here? No, you should not. <laughs> well, you could there, but we're going to charge you a lot of money per year in uh, fees. <laughs> That's how it's going to work. And then uh, Azure is our, you know, here, but they only have one story, uh, and that is that uh, Azure Orbital Ground Station as a service is now extending the life and reducing costs of satellite operators. Uh, and, you know, it's in space, Azure in space. So, yay, that's all I have for Azure. I can't, I can't give you more excitement about it. It was a slow week for Azure. <laughs> well, I guess now there's, now there's competition for Amazon's existing service, and I suppose there's, there's pressure in terms of cost, but... You know, you think if you launched satellite, you would already have the existing infrastructure to uh, communicate with that thing. So, I, I don't think that was maybe if that stuff started to get retired or needs to be replaced because it's you know apparently runs a 2014 or prior version of TLS. Uh, you know, you need a new option to connect to those satellite <laughs> dishes, and so that's why you need that. <laughs> uh, and then our story of all stories for the day is an Oracle story. The Oracle dedicated region, which is a complete cloud solution in your data center, is now 40% cheaper uh, and much smaller <laughs> footprint required for you. Uh, for all those who want to give OCI all the monies for OCI in your data center, you can now do that with OCI dedicated region solution, which will allow you to run their workload on-premises for data residency requirements, low latency app performance, and infra modernization. Now, you might say, well, Outposts and Stack and all those other things. That is true. Those all exist. But the Oracle one gives you the every <laughs> single cloud offering from them available in this particular solution. So anything you want from Oracle that they saw on OCI, you can get in your data center through the Oracle dedicated region. Now, to uh, the Oracle dedicated region is their solution to satisfy several customer requirements, including a complete cloud region in a customer's own data center, offering the agility, scalability, and economics of OCI while retaining data and service control. Now, remember that economic part of that, because we'll get to that in a second. Dedicated region <laughs> architecture like OCI is designed to maintain hardware and software density requirements to implement three independent fault domains. So you're already hearing a lot of infrastructure. Supporting multiple dedicated regions, creating a private dedicated cloud realm. If you don't want just a region, you have a realm. Uh, and engineers have security controls at all levels and increased flexibility in how they install and expand their infrastructure giving customers the ability to quickly scale and, and uh, quickly and scale rapidly as OCI manages all their capacity. Uh, so this apparently existed previously, uh, but only for customers who were special. Uh, and you had to have a minimum order of 50 racks of equipment for $6 million a year on a four-year commitment. But now, because it's 70% smaller, you can only get 12 racks for a $1 million annually uh, per four-year minimum commitment. And I, I'm sure that's just for the hardware. Sure, there's also additional charges for other things as well. Uh, but if you're interested in spending six six million to one million dollars on Oracle OCI infrastructure for your data center, uh, they got your back this week. So that's 120 grand per per rack per year. That's correct. That's about the same price as Outpost, though, isn't it? About 10k a month for a rack. Yeah, but uh, you only need one rack for Outposts <laughs> versus 12. Well, that's right, that's right. that's fair. I, I will give Oracle some credit, though, some credit, and say it's awesome that you can run their entire stack wherever yes. you like. 
That is cool. That's, and, uh, and now you know how they open cool. regions so quickly because they just need 12 racks or 50 racks. <laughs> it, well, we joked about the garage before. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Literally. I could fit 12 in my garage. <laughs> I could do it. I think it's a stretch to call them regions. I, I kind of wonder if they will advertise them as, oh, we've got 359 regions now. Uh, some of them are private, <laughs> right. but some of them are public. <laughs> well, I wonder, I wonder if it's like that offering that we have from uh, AWS where they, you know, they were offering you uh, the bank's network as a cloud service through AWS. I think it was, you know, it was some weird thing. Like, so Oracle region powered by, you know, blah company in Omaha. <laughs> That's how you get this new region. <laughs> I'm just I'm curious now if you ran if you like loaded that thing up with workloads for the year and then instead of doing that ran that exact same set of workloads in the Oracle cloud what would the cost be there and if the costs are like pretty much identical are they basically just saying we're just going to let you pay for your own data center and charge you the same amount or is there a significant discount I don't think it's a discount I think it's going to cost you more but but you're paying more for the Privilege, or or for the um, yeah. for, for the features of whatever your data security requirements are. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it doesn't include your Oracle licenses, your Windows licenses, Oracle Linux licenses. I mean, they're I'm no, sure no. just like in yeah. in the case of AWS, like oh yeah, I, I pay for the outpost, then you also pay for the storage usage, you also pay for the MySQL usage. You know, you pay for all the managed services you're running on top of the hardware uh, because that's how Oracle's going to make their money back on OCI. <laughs> that's that's the yeah. future. Yeah, I mean, the advantage is they, they don't have quite the same suite of services as GCP or AWS, so it's probably much easier for them to deliver this as a service. But I don't think the other cloud providers are going to be far behind in, in offering many more services locally. But they are far behind because the other cloud service uh, providers do not have the next generation cloud. Well, that, that's true. That's true. I, that's I true. Forget the that. marketing, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Larry. Cloud 2.0, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well that is it uh, for another fantastic week in the cloud and we are going to the lightning round hosted by Peter finally <laughs> alright like, what has happened since I've been gone have you been have you just been holding off or well, have people uh, been well, scoring points we have not been scoring points uh, so we we were getting to the point where we were trying to crowdsource points so like uh, last week's episode we actually put a poll onto the CloudPod Slack team uh, so they could reward us points because uh, we were getting concerned that if you didn't come back soon, we were going to not, they were not going to be able to take me out. So that was the yeah. concern. Uh, and so we were, we were trying to crowdsource, uh, but you, you've done a return. So maybe we don't have to do that now. Maybe yeah. we'll do it too, just to see, you know, if they agree with you, Peter, just to just double check you. That's a great idea. Yeah. Well, we're, we're, we're nine points in as far as points awarded, which puts us really effectively the first week of March in terms of the last time we, we got scored. And we're halfway through the year. So, yeah, we need to uh, maybe. This maybe, is good, though. Uh, Plenty of time to catch up now. Can I propose maybe mm -hmm. double points from here on out just to, just to yeah, make yeah. up for the. Uh... <laughs> How about this? Triple points. Here's what we do. Single points if Justin wins, double points if Jonathan wins, and triple points if Ryan wins. <laughs> nice, or nice. maybe you should do like like a stacked stacked ranking kind of thing where yeah. you give you know the best comment. You know, obviously my comment, three points, <laughs> <laughs> and then second and first place, two and one. Sounds complicated. <laughs> I, I can barely get a like half the time. I I like I have my mindset, and then we're finishing up, and I'm reading all the other ones, and I totally forgot. Who won? And I'm like, oh no! <laughs> Frantically going back, reading, trying to remember which one I liked. Yeah, let's not well, overcomplicate it for Peter. There's only <laughs> there's only four this week though, so you should be okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. here we go. Four 
items. Let's start with AWS support announces an improved create case experience. Which is Unless that clearly, case is automatically resolving my incidents before. <laughs> How is this going to be improved? Yes. I was thinking that this is just their way of trying to optimize people from not submitting stuff as sub one. So they're trying to, they're just moving that down the list. That's the new improvement. <laughs> the only case I want is a briefcase. Oh, a brief one. Nice. Oh, brief I, see what he did. I see what he did there. See what he did there? Yeah. I didn't know. see it. Yep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now in public preview god knows why but you can create an additional 5,000 Azure storage accounts within your subscription which account did I put that file again is it is that one no it's this one no no, it's that one over there that's that's the future conversation from now on about storage (laughs) yes this is called bad architecture as a service (laughs) Yes, indeed. Yes, not well architected. Poorly architected. You have architected poorly. Uh, Moving on, Amazon has a plan to make Alexa mimic anyone's voice. Hey, Alexa, uh, make sure Peter gives me the point this week on the cloud pot, will you? Thanks. (laughs) This was our real plan uh, for scoring. (laughs) We're just going to configure Peter's not really here. He's not back. All we need is a minute. Just have him join this week. All we need is a minute of his voice. We could feed it in, and we could fire him after that. Actually, I, I don't need—I don't need you to do that because I have—I have, I have uh, 171 episodes of your voice. Oh, you do. <laughs> you do. That you do. Including all the outtakes. Yeah. <laughs> now I have the early outtakes. Yeah, those are the those are the bad ones. You don't want those. Those are the bad ones. I, the, dude, the early. I would be happier if people could hear the recent outtakes rather than the early intakes. <laughs> <laughs> I think we really don't have any outtakes anymore, honestly. I, I, we are confident enough and, and we speak clearly enough and we don't um and ah like we used to. And I, I think we're immensely better than we used to be. So outtakes are by special request at this point. Our editors yes. just gotten better That's time. <laughs> we still say oh and ah all the time. Yeah, the editors thanks, just cut it out. Thanks, Elliot. <laughs> yeah. All right. AWS Fargate now fully supports multi-line logging powered by AWS for FluidBit. Uh, product manager saying, how do I increase revenue of Fargate? I make the pro- I make these tasks run longer writing out log files. Perfect. Mm, conspiracy <laughs> theory. I like it. What? You didn't want your, you know, Java, you know, thread dump to be you know, individually separated lo- logging statements. Now it could be one big one. Well, it would just truncate Absolutely. after the first, you know, hundred characters. You're like, ah, <laughs> what did you see, Java dump? I don't know. <laughs> well, that was wonderful. Very brief, which helps us get our point today with a brief case. Nice, Jonathan. Thank you. Well Thank done. you. I'm only, well done. Only two points behind Justin now. Yeah, nice. you can make it. You come back. It's possible. Yeah. I did feel that I did feel that Alexa mimic trip was good though. I just I'll put it out there, but it, it makes fun of Peter. So the, why there's any points? But I still liked it. So it was there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was basically it. just trying to save my job. I wasn't even thinking that that was that was going to count as a as a funny comment. <laughs> well, we all thought it was fun. Never mind. Sorry. We all. We all. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, no, it wasn't funny. It, it wasn't funny at all. It was. 
All right. Well, things are coming up once again in the cloud. Uh, this week, uh, why we're recording is uh, Reinforce. Uh, and I've heard nothing, so I assume nothing's happened there so far because I... No one's complained about anything. Uh, but, uh, you know, next week, uh, or two weeks away, actually, is Black Hat USA, for those of you who like to buy a laptop, take it to a conference, and then throw it away. Uh, and then VMworld is coming up at the end of August. And then Google Cloud Next, coming up fast, October 11th through the 13th. Uh, I will definitely be at that one, I know for sure. And then Oracle Open World, uh, Cloud World now, will be October 16th through the 20th. And much more coming later in the year we'll cover later. But uh, yeah, another busy week in the cloud. I'm sure we'll have lots to talk about next week, maybe from Reinforce, maybe not. We will see. And have another fantastic week in the cloud. Nice to have you back, Peter. Thank you. Nice to be back. Great to talk to all y'all. See you later. Bye, everybody. Bye. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. Mm-hmm.